Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 23rd, 2020, and my guest is Franklin Zimmering, the William G. Simon Professor of Law and the Faculty Director of Criminal Justice Studies at the Law School at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of numerous books, including When Police Kill, which is the subject of today's conversation. Frank, welcome to EconTalk. Well, thank you for having me. If all goes well, there should be video of this conversation via Zoom, uh, excuse me, via YouTube. I encourage you to go to YouTube and search for EconTalk and subscribe. Frank, your book was published in 2017. Uh, a lot has happened since then, much of it tragic. But I want to start with your, where your book starts, which is you talk about the fact that there are two ways that the state uh, takes the lives of the people here. One is through capital punishment, the execution of criminals who have been convicted of crimes. The other is through the actions of police officers. And until 2014, there was an enormous amount of attention focused on the death penalty and very little on the deaths from police action. Why was that the case before 2014? Well, it, it's, it's a very simple political fact that what happens with executions and execution policy state by state is that we aggregate it. But the, uh, the fact that we have 18,000 different police departments and that the police department is the operational unit uh, uh, to focus on meant that each police killing uh, happened as a separate news event, uh, and we never added them up. So what happens is that you have uh, uh, 20 to 40 executions in the United States, Career. Uh, but but it yes, but it, it that seems like an enormity. Uh, whereas if you keep the thousand to eleven hundred police killings a year that happen, each as a separate event and treated as unique, you never add it up, and you don't realize that we have a steady and collective and extremely large uh, governmental use of lethal force, uh, which doesn't get aggregated. And it, there are attempts to, there, there were attempts to aggregate that. There still are attempts to aggregate it. And what a lot, the first part of your book describes the different choices that you, people have made in, in attempting to summarize those data. And of course, the official numbers actually appear to be uh, too low by about half. Uh, two newspapers, the Washington Post and the British paper, The Guardian, uh, get a number closer to the 1,000 or 1,100 that, that you talk about. Uh, of course, those deaths, those 1,100, 1,000 or so, 1,100, include any case where a person died at the hands of police. It includes self-defense. It includes shooting somebody in the back. And it tragically, of course 
as well includes uh, cases like George Floyd, where a gun was not used, but the uh, a person died as a result of, of police action. So there's a huge dis- variety of ways that people die at the hands of police, correct? There's a very large variety, but there are also uh, clusters and concentrations which are extremely important. There are about 1,120 deaths in police custody or police interaction each year, but almost exactly a 1,000 of those are fatal shootings. Uh, And so that cluster is 90% uh, of the events. And it's that 90% uh, uh, where the fatal force used by police, uh, the, the exercise of control, is an intention uh, to wound with a lethal instrument. So it's probably best to keep that 90% uh, as a, uh, a singular and aggregate phenomenon. And then the question is, how many of those are, well, justified is one way to divide them and then non-justified, but that, requ- that requires a, a particular kind uh, of, uh, uh, of fact-finding. The best way to divide that thousand shooting deaths is into the necessary and then define what I mean by necessary and the unnecessary. And that division is almost 50-50. There is only one kind of weapon assault which creates a large risk of life to police officers. And the overwhelming majority of all of the events that provoke shootings are assaults against police officers. In 57% of those cases, and this is again using that Washington Post and Guardian uh, uh, aggregation, uh, in 57% of those cases, the police say a gun was present. In very few of those cases is a gun fired at a police officer, but there's supposed to be a gun there in 57% of the cases somewhere, and therefore some kind of a firearms threat. Now, the reason to separately analyze those cases is very simple. 97.5% of all fatalities of police from assault in the six years that we aggregate them using FBI statistics are with guns. So that the only significant and recurrent threat to an officer's life 
is with the firearm. Now, that's important because police officers have a wide variety of other kinds of force that they can exercise. They can call for more help. Uh, They can use a variety of weapons uh, that are usually Uh, non-lethal. Tasers, mechanisms to to magnify the effectiveness of hand-to-hand combat. So killing force is only necessary when police lives are at meaningful risk. Now, that means that more than 400 of the events that police say is a justification for the shooting death involve weapons that don't put police at significant death risk. They are, he had a blade and was showing it. They are non-injury events. They are what are called personal force. But that in a country of 300 million people with 650,000 police is talking about a very, very tiny death risk in any attack or cumulatively over the year. It's much more dangerous to drive around the city. It's much more dangerous that ninety. Yeah, as you point Uh, out, that the 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 good news is that the risk of death uh, in the line of duty for a police officer has fallen dramatically uh, over the last few decades, mainly for a lot of reasons, but mainly because of Kevlar, uh, body armor, and body protection. A knife is not nearly as dangerous as it was before Kevlar. Uh, a bullet no, isn't it either. It was never dangerous for police. It was never life endangering for police. Uh, there are uh, the infrequency of fatal knife assaults uh, uh, antedates uh, the uh, Kevlar. Uh, 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 circumstances uh, very substantially. Well, I don't mean um, to. I don't mean to. Um, I take the point. I, I'm in agreement that there's a lot of. Um, there appears to be a, hundreds of deaths that are uh, that are avoidable, uh, that don't require fatal action on the part of the police. However, it's also the case that. One, perhaps one of the reasons that knives never lead to the deaths of police is because they they shoot the people who have them. So that, well, that except for the fact the that it's it depends with almost the distances. A, yeah, <laughs> it also is no. It's more than a hundredfold difference. Uh, the 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 number. Remember, it isn't a knife attack that we're talking about. Correct. Yeah, it is. 
he had, or I thought he had, a bladed weapon. And so it is a display, not an assault. And the fatality risk was never significant. Uh, There are several things. It's illegal, obviously, uh, to brandish a blade at a police officer. It's illegal to run away from a police officer. It's illegal to try and bolt away from an arrest. So that there are many situations which justify force. They just don't justify killing. Right. So as you point out, one of the things I learned from your book, which I learned a great deal, one of the things I learned is that in 1985, the Supreme Court ruled that you can't use deadly force against someone fleeing uh, from the scene, uh, which is had a, had a big effect, but not big enough in that it still is the case that that a thousand people die a year at the hands of police. Before we get into the possibilities for reducing that number, I, I was surprised uh, at how many times deaths occur in response to a call related to domestic um, violence. Is that an accurate uh, summary of, of one of the findings of the book? That it's a non-trivial, a non-trivial number of people are shot by police who are responding to a call of of uh, domestic violence. And I assume that could be from the spouse or it could be from neighbors hearing screaming or something. I, I don't know what the, you know, we don't know the circumstances. Well, that, that's right. But it, it, the, the ways in which, and I think the police do an accurate job here, the way in which the category is described is not as domestic assaults, although families and intimates are involved, but the, the, the notion is the entire of personal conflicts where an individual has a weapon and uses that weapon in a manner that is regarded by the people that call the police as either threatening others or threatening themselves. Sure. The dispute category is by itself a quarter of all the situations that provoke killings by police. And that's nothing new. That is the uh, chronic condition. And one of the reasons for that is that most police calls are concentrated in non-offending behavior. Police are the first line of intervention whenever there is something problematic and potentially threatening that citizens want to respond. If you don't call the cops, who do you call? So one of the challenges, I think, in today's discussion or conversation in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd is the question of are police being asked to do things they're not very good at uh, and that often lead to violence, death. And of course, just as a footnote, uh, we're not only interested in death. We are interested in death, but harassment, 
uh, fear on the streets in, in certain communities is also part of the concerns that are being voiced right now. So a, a lot of people suggested, you know, police don't make very good social workers uh, showing up at a, a, a marital argument that's escalating into violence at two in the morning is not their strong suit. Uh, is that part is that do you think that's an important part of where police actions go wrong? Well, I think that the answer to that is yes and no, because let's back up. There are lots of things in domestic uh, conflict resolution uh, that police may not be wonderful at, but police bring a capacity to use force and to respond uh, that is very important when the weaker of two people in a conflict, we can take the domestic assault as a typical one, wants to call for help. If you call a social worker, yeah. it had better be a pretty strong social worker. <laughs> yeah, now that's one of the challenges as we try to think of how to remake um, either police or their, act their actions or the scope of their activities is that usually most of us call the police up you know, done it a handful of times in my life, a small handful, thank God. But most of us call the police when we're afraid for our lives uh, or our property in, in some way or someone else's property or lives. Um, so so it is a inherently danger, often dangerous situation. And as you point out, the U.S. has a much higher rate of police killing than in other countries. And part of it is the inevitable result of 60 million handguns in the hands of American citizens. American people. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, uh, the central finding in the book, which is what is it that threatens police lives, is the classic good news, bad news joke. The good news is that only firearms right. are real risks to police officer lives. The bad news is there are a lot of firearms in the United States, and it is particularly the concealed ones, the ones that police can't see, which are specific and unique threats. So that the best that we can do if we can really reduce the number of killings by police to the numbers which are realistically necessary to protect police lives, we can cut the number of dead citizens in half and maybe by 75%. That's the good news. The bad news is that still leaves civilian deaths in the hundreds where there is a realistic threat of guns being used. Guns are the only problem, but they're a major problem. How many police die a year roughly in the United States from in the line of duty? 50. 50. So I think it's just important to get that out there. I think one of the things we've heard in the aftermath of George Floyd's death is that only a handful of people are killed who are unarmed, as if that is the right measure of police 
killing. It's not. Obviously, there are plenty of people who are either armed with a knife, as you say, but are not in it, don't have a chance to kill anybody who get or killed. Or a baseball bat. Yep. Uh, uh, or a blunt object, none of which kill police officers. Or they have, a presumably some of them have guns, but don't brandish them and just get killed anyway. Uh, out of fear or whatever. I, 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 or don't have guns, but look like they have right, guns. Right, which is... And sometimes, their radios, sometimes, you see, the the more aggressive you are at the early indications, the more false positives. Yeah, Have sure. we ever done a carefully detailed analysis of each and every one of those shooting episodes, some police departments have in some cities. But again, you've got 18,000 different police departments. We have no idea what the range is. And that's why it has been very important to start with what newspapers and media have recounted, because as I said to you at the beginning, each shooting by a police department is a single event. It's never aggregated in a policy scientific way. And that's our first big mistake. Somebody should be counting the aggregates figuring out what the determinants are and drawing the lines between necessary and unnecessary use of force that frequently kills. Of course, reasonable people could disagree about what necessary, unnecessary is. You might imagine that police officers feel differently from non-police officers. But I think what's powerful about the book is that it's clear there are cases where um, and it's not three, unfortunately, where deadly force is used. It might be five police officers killing somebody who's 20 feet away, uh, shooting it, discharging their weapons into some uh, poor soul who's 20 feet away. Um, so and with I, a I just, blade. Right. I'm just telling I, I just want listeners who are who are who are um, wondering about this is that, you know, if you read the book. And, and there's quite a bit of careful empirical work in the book. And my listeners know that I'm skeptical about a lot of statistical analysis. Uh, I hope it doesn't insult you, Frank, but there's not a lot of statistical analysis in the modern econometric sense. There are a lot of facts. Now, of course, facts are tricky. As, and a lot of your book is trying to make it clear that just counting, which would be the most basic kind of number we have, how many? Answering that question, it turns out it's not so straightforward. Once you've got that answer, which you make the case, I think, quite plausibly that the number of people killed by police in America each year is, is something close to a 1,000. Uh, once you have that, then the question is, well, how many of that 1,000 are avoidable and you, without putting police at risk, which is, which is you very clearly state. Your, your goal is not to, to put police at risk, and you suggest that it is hundreds uh, of people whose lives could have been saved, whose deaths could have been avoided, had a different strategy been used by the officers. And those of us who've watched the, you know, the horrible videos over the last six years that have increasingly been available because people have cell phones and a thoughtful person then has to wonder how many events happened we didn't have access to visually. 
before the advent of common cell phone use and recording, the average person has to wonder, you know, this this is this could be avoided. And why isn't it? Why isn't it the case that somebody, the tragic death of Eric Garner, George Floyd, uh, who were clearly at the time not risk at at risk of harming the police officers involved, their their deaths could have been avoided. The puzzle for many of us is, well, why aren't they punished for what seems to be the overuse of lethal force? Somebody who shot fleeing, somebody who shot uh, at a distance by more than one officer, some, somebody who shot 15 times by an officer who, 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 often an officer who's got other issues in their record. Why do these people not get punished? And so the standard, I think, way that many uh Economists certainly and, and casual economists in the public would respond is well well obviously there's very little consequence to the misuse of force by police. We need to fix that. If you had to describe the barriers to fixing that, where would you start? First of all, is it true that that officers frequently escape any sanctions or censure for the use of deadly force when it perhaps is not necessary? And secondly, why hasn't it changed? Very simple in two dimensions. In the first instance, very few of these killings are situations in which all of the fault is on the individual officer. And that becomes absolutely important because if you're talking about the criminal responsibility of the individual officer, it was all his fault. That is a small minority of all the cases and a small minority of the unnecessary killings. Why is that? That is because the standards that justify the use of deadly force that Departments utilize in making evaluations are ambiguous and cover an awful lot of settings where police lives aren't at risk. There are knives. There are baseball bats. Uh, uh, There are intensely felt personal force assaults that don't kill police officers, but that do create justification. So what that means, that if you really want to prevent the 400 at least killings a year that are unnecessary, you're going to have to find a way to sanction and prevent the killings which are the joint responsibility of systems of police, the police chief, the administrative rules, and police officers. And the way way you can do that is with big money damages. If it is the system and the officer who are jointly at fault, they should be jointly sanctioned. 
you can't put a police department in jail. Right. <laughs> but what you can do is you can create a money damage incentive that will then produce the miraculous cure for hundreds of unnecessary deaths, which are very simple rules that police departments announce and administer. Don't shoot rules. If the weapon doesn't kill police officers, don't shoot when that is the weapon that you see. Use other kinds of force, get more help, or don't make an arrest, but don't kill. Those are the don't shoot rules. The other kind of very simple rules are stop shooting rules. When police officers are go through weapons training, they're told, and by God, if you're going to use lethal force, make sure. Now, if your life was at consistent risk in all these settings, that might be something that would be discussable. But when you have an awful lot, probably half or more of these killing situations where the police officer's life isn't at risk, then the need to, quote, make sure and to keep shooting, which dramatically elevates the death rate. One wound inflicted from a police gun, 20.8% death rate. Three wounds, four wounds, five wounds, 15 shots, and all of a sudden, death occurs in the majority of cases. So question one is, was any gunfire necessary? Question two is, what are the situations where it is clear that whatever danger to life there was is now over? Is he on the ground? Is he running away? <laughs> is he already wounded and unlikely to shoot? So. You have don't shoot rules and stop shooting rules. Now, how do you enforce them? The more those rules are clear, the greater the number of unjustified shootings where it will look like the clear fault of the individual officer or group of officers. Then the system isn't adding to the blame and sharing the blame. So the clearer the rules, the easier it will be to assess individual responsibility when the officers shoot and the rules don't allow it. But the other thing which is clear is that police officers care about promotion. They, they care about their salaries. Sure. They care about their ratings. 
so that once there is an administrative priority to make sense and to save civilian lives, the numbers can go down. There are some police departments that do pretty well these days. In New York City, in the 1970s, citizen deaths from police guns were 70 a year. It's closer to seven or eight now in the most populous city in the United States. Those are not simply rules, but those are the police knowing the priorities. And as you point out, which I thought was um, important insight, is that police are protected by the same justice system that protects all of us uh, in the United States. Uh, they have a certain, uh, they can use lethal force with more impunity than the average person. But when accused of using lethal force inappropriately, they are subject to the same justice system that, that we are, which is um, we are given uh, a lot of opportunity to prove our innocence, which is a good thing that most of us treasure about the U.S. system when it at least works in our favor. Here it offends a lot of people when it protects an, an officer from punishment. But when I, As I'm, an individual. Correct. But if you have a set of sanctions that can blame the system as well, and that's what financial sanctions can do, yeah, they care about then that. Then you can spread the blame. So, what role do you think? What role do you think unions play? Uh, which you know is another. Uh, you didn't mention it in your book, as far as I remember, but unions play a role in. Um, protecting officers, obviously, from inappropriate sanctions, but some would suggest they protect officers from appropriate sanctions. Um, and I think a lot of the idea of, quote, defunding the police, which can mean a variety of things, uh, but certainly if we're talking about reforming the police, uh, the unions are, appear to be something of a barrier to that reform. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Uh, I think that the answer is yes. But again, the way in which you focus your control mechanism can make a difference there. The closer you are to generating systemic pressure, going after the police chief too, the less important uh, uh, will be the opposition of the police union there is no police chief's union. Well, mm -hmm. there, there is an association. But that takes some of the important pressure off. It is still the case that there is an unwillingness by police unions to focus disciplinary attention of any kind to use of force policies. Yeah, let's forget forget killings for the moment. Uh, an officer who has generated a set of complaints for overzealousness, cruelty, um, uh, being a, the equivalent of a rogue officer, but, but doesn't kill anybody, 
but gets a series of complaints and uh, that person should be sanctioned by the chief. But is that possible in the union setting in most American cities right now? Uh, It's difficult, but possible. And again, it's probably easier to create financial and promotional sanctions uh, and to withhold particular benefits uh, than it is uh, to uh, to use what are essentially quasi-criminal disciplinary uh, tactics uh, exclusively. So the broader the controls and the more administrative it looks, uh, the easier it will be to justify without what is essentially uh, uh, a criminal conviction or a 100% fault standard, which puts all the fault on the officer and none on the system. In your book, you talk about Philadelphia. Your book was published in 2017, and the last two years – you had data for in Philadelphia, as you point out, an underlying theme of this conversation is that we don't have reliable data across the country, but we do have some reliable data in various cities at various times. So Philadelphia had a dramatic drop uh, over the two years before your book came out, or at least in the data that was available when your book came out. Two questions. Did that drop continue to stay low? Did the level at least continue to stay low in Philadelphia? I think and, so. And do we know why Philadelphia was able to cut the rate of death uh, in police action so dramatically? Well, uh, uh, w- what we don't have is a set of discrete and highly visible uh, administrative events to focus on and say, yes, on July 15th, Here's what the chief said. Right. But the message gets around. Uh, The real question there is that when you look at these big drops and you ask, well, have police been markedly less safe under those circumstances? Evidently not. Because the death has, rate of police in the line of duty continues to have has fallen and stayed low. Yeah, yes, the big fall has been over a long period right. of time, but the big stay low has been sustained. And when departments, let's go back to New York, which has over forty years uh, uh, an enormous drop. Did that make uh, uh, policing more life-threatening in the city? Uh, and the answer is apparently not. So your claim Should is we do yeah. Your Should claim is do? just to make it clear. Your claim is that let, let me try to restate it. Your claim is that over the last decade or two, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, it has become increasingly safe to be a police officer on the job. It has not become increasingly safe to be a uh, a potential victim of police action. 
whether that's you have to be careful here. These the police don't generally in America go out and kill people for fun. There are we're still talking about criminals, but we're trying to talk about the unnecessary use of lethal force. That that and has we're not, not necessarily, by the way, talking about criminals. Remember, some that of them if it's sure. a dispute, that yeah, is twenty five percent. Fair enough. Okay. Okay, so, uh, so I would there's... make one amendment to the way in which you describe my argument. Yeah, go ahead. The big drop in uh, uh, the, the risk of death to police goes back from the mid-70s uh, to uh, 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 probably the late 90s or the turn of the new century. What we have done since the dramatic lowering of police risks uh, is maintain them at that low level. Now, 50 police deaths a year is still, if you want to compare it to France or Germany, uh, uh, many more. And the reason is, again, all of those guns. Yep. But it is a substantial and very consistent uh, uh, increase in police safety from life-threatening assaults, which does not appear to be at significant risk I don't think that there's anything about police shooting less that will lead to a substantial increase from 50 a year. I wish I could say that we could also anticipate and substantial drops from 50 police officers a year. Possible. But for that, I'm afraid we'd need a different country. Yeah. Well, fair enough. But I think there's another issue that, that you're we haven't talked about. I don't think it's in the book either. So I, let me let me restate. I'm going to try to again to summarize your argument. I'll try to be a little more succinct. Um, it's gotten safer to be a police officer, and yet police still kill a lot of people in a line of duty that probably could be avoided, where their lives are not at stake and and civilians are dying. Now uh, that's that's a completely fair. Uh, so here's uh, the question. If we reduced uh, the use of lethal force by police officers, uh, is it possible that other people would be endangered other than the police? In particular, what role does the potential use of lethal force have in in reducing crime? I, I, let me make it clear here. I'm not suggesting this is about justice or a good thing, but there might be an unintended consequence if we if we if we put in the types of don't shoot, no shoot uh, rules that you're talking about. So, for example, somebody fleeing from the scene of a crime, uh, you can chase them down. You gotta, if you're not going to shoot them, you're going to have to, and you can't, <laughs> you're either going to have to get some help from other people or tackle them or do something else if they're really um, eager to escape, which they Or arrest well. them later. If you can if find them. Got, if, if you can find got, them. No, if you've got probable cause... The question is not if you can find them, but when. Uh, No, I I think that there is absolutely no clear indication of 
any uh, significant or measurable crime prevention, and it would be so unlikely because of the almost complete lack of overlap. Remember, you've got more dispute settlements. Uh, Uncle Floyd is up there with a gun <laughs> and very unhappy. Then you have uh, any kind of cops and robbers situation. Yeah. Uh, too. So that you, it's not. Would, yeah. A better way to say yeah. it. You're, you're, what you're saying is that most of the deaths that occur in the line of officers discharging their duty is that uh, it's not like they, they they come upon a bank robbery or a mugging a mugging um, yeah. or it, it's simply um, a, a dangerous person who's a little bit unpredictable. And if that person has a gun, we're not surprised that sometimes bad things happen if they brandish the gun. If they don't brandish the gun and they don't have a gun visible, it's sometimes uh, you're, you're suggesting a lot of those deaths could be avoided at no higher oh, yes. risk to the police. Yes, so, but and those are the situations. And under those circumstances, uh, to even then peek at general crime rates and suggest that there might be some uh, 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 significant uh, uh, relationship uh, is uh, is pretty far fetched. Well, I'm bringing it and up it, for a couple of reasons. One, I know there's some research on it right now, which I'm not on top of, but maybe we'll come back to it here at Econ Talk. But I, I'm I'm thinking about uh, a, a city that's gotten a lot of press in the last week or so, which in the last couple of weeks in, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, which is Camden, New Jersey. So there were there were a couple articles, at least probably more than two. I saw two. Uh, extolling Camden for reimagining its police department, making it more community-based, gentler, nicer. And they cut the number of deaths uh, that, that were caused by police dramatically. So th that's the first two-thirds of the article, and, and it makes you feel great. And it gives you hope, and, it, and it's, 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 des it's you know, at a time when we're really a horrible time right now in America over this issue, uh, and a horrible time for people who are... at at risk of being shot by the police, the idea that there's an alternative that's imaginable is, is, is very encouraging. However, as you read your way further down the article, it says, after it's talking about how great the reduction has been in the number of, of shootings by the police, it says, but of course, there are the other numbers. And I'm thinking, what other numbers are they talking about? And those are crime. And in, in the city of Camden, um, it, at least based on the way I understood the article, other crimes increased. Crimes increased, period. Now, that might be a trade-off worth making for a thousand reasons, but it's not a free lunch. Uh, a, a, a gentler police force, obviously there are many ways to reinterpret, to interpret that phrase, and I understand what you're talking about. It's very, you're trying to be unambiguous. It's not necessarily easy to be unambiguous. Don't shoot unless, stop shooting when. Those are, you know, you could have rules that are somewhat unambiguous, at least on paper, in real life, they're inevitably going to be complicated by uh, adrenaline, fear, uh, circumstance, uncertainty, uh, passion, etc. But Well, I'm, yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to uh, step in and make uh, uh, two points Go for it. Uh, uh, in opposition to any evidence of a... Um, uh, a clear causal relationship between 
increased shooting by police and decreases in general crime rates. Uh, in the first instance, there has been no persuasive indication or statistical study that decreasing shootings by police increases the number of attacks against police. Now that's yeah, but I'm not talking you, about that. Yeah, Frank. I know, but that's exactly where you'd have to look because that is at least a situation where there is a clear link between the particular risk and the particular counter risk. No, I don't That's think so. That's what let me, it's let me, supposed to be about. Yeah, well, well, let me disagree with you, and then you can try to you can push back. But it seems to me the following. Uh, right now, we're at a time where uh, the, the prestige of the police is not very high. Uh, we had a situation. Well, I think over, that varies from city to city. Fair enough. But in the last couple of weeks, there's been an allegation that uh, police stood by uh, as looting occurred, that they, they you know, th there's some adversarial aspects of policing that I think need desperately to be repaired if we can figure this out. Don't know if we can, and it, it will be city by city. There are some national things we can do. You talk about some in the book, such as data gathering, which are extremely important. There's some Justice Department of Justice issues. But my point is the following. One way to reduce police shootings is to reduce the uh, level of policing. <laughs> And, and that's a challenge. Now, as I, I'm trying to make a contrast, maybe it's not a fair one. I'm trying to make a contrast between the police being less vigilant, which I can understand a lot of people both uh, being in favor of that, that they're too vigilant right now. They're too active. So what we need to do is the police need to pull back. When you do that, you're going to get less killings by the police, but you might get more crime. I assume you probably would. So well, that's what I, I think is the issue. Okay. I'm... I have to throw some books at you here. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, and, uh, and of course, they're books I wrote. Uh, <laughs> in 2012, Yay. Uh, uh, I wrote a book called The City That Became Safe. Okay. And it's about New York policing and its effects. And uh, remember that New York used to shoot 70 people a year, but by the turn of the century, uh, it was only shooting seven or eight or nine. That's a big uh, improvement. But it was doing an awful lot of policing. And it turns out that intensity of policing uh, is a completely different phenomenon. And it was one that was very effective in New York. The, the point I was making is that if you thought there was a real causal impact plus or minus on specific risk of shootings by police, you would look for it in the circumstances which the police would usually use for the justification. Those are in a tiny minority of fatalities either crime in process or make an arrest. They are overwhelmingly assaults against police. That makes sense, but then it suggests 
that what you want to see if there's any real preventive effect of police shootings is on the primary purpose of police shooting. And there I have not seen any decent statistical evidence. Now, I've so got to go excellent. further no, than that's that. An ex- that's an excellent point. I mean, you're saying that that if police kill to defend themselves, then reducing how much they kill should make them less dangerous. Uh, excuse me, should put them in more danger. The fact that it doesn't suggests that we could reduce the civilian deaths without endangering the police. I guess the question is whether that there's some other spillover effects in how that that That's, is administered. That, yeah, but that would be almost impossible to measure. And here I've got to throw the oldest book I'll throw at you at. It's called Deterrence, the Legal Threat and Crime Control. And um, uh, I don't think you were out of short pants when it was published. When was that? What year was 19... that? 19... 72. Well, I appreciate the compliment. I was 18, but go ahead. I was out of short okay. pants, but but occasionally wore them in, in the summer. Okay. <laughs> no, but look, that's there are all kinds of, you know, you, you paid me the compliment of saying that the book that we're discussing, When Police Kill, is full of facts, yeah. but not regression equations. Yeah, which I like. There's a reason for that. <laughs> Uh, and that is uh, that uh, uh, the assumptions of causality uh, that have to be uh, embedded in those kinds of statistical attempts to tease out prevention are pretty tricky. And as you it's, point out, we don't have much data on the things we might want to have data on. It. Yeah. You also point out, by the way, uh, you use a what 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 would used to be cutting edge, but now might be called primitive. You use what's called cross-tabulation or cross-tabs to show that there's variation that, that makes sense that we can learn something from. And one of the things we haven't talked about is that crime in the United States has fallen partly simply because the population has gotten older. Uh, young people are more prone to commit crime than older people. Uh, and so there are changes that aren't due to changes in police strategy, aren't due to changes in deterrence, aren't due to changes in policy, but are just demographic in nature. Um, uh, you know, one thing we didn't get to talk about, we're almost out of time. I, 2014 was a, um, when you wrote your book, was a watershed. Uh, 2014 was, uh, Michael Brown died uh, in Ferguson. Eric Garner died in Staten Island. He was, Eric Garner was, um, was, died of, of a variety of things, but he was not shot. Um, no, Freddie, it was it was almost the fraternal twin of, of the Minneapolis Floyd, yeah. situation. Correct. And we have Freddie Gray dying in police custody in April 2015. We have Colin Kaepernick in 2016 uh, calling attention to these issues uh, as a football player and, and kneeling during the national anthem. And despite all, so that obviously changed the, that sequence and the fact that these were uh, able to be most of them were able to be seen visually outraged and there were more but they outraged a lot of people and we understand that's part of the reason why things changed and whether people cared about this what fascinates me is that the death of of george floyd seems to be a, a different watershed 
obviously, in the response. It isn't just, oh, here's another one. Here's an officer. Part of it's the length, the tragic length of time that this person, poor person, was um, under the knee of the officer. The fact that it was visual, again, obviously had a huge impact. But everything seems up for grabs now in a way that it wasn't, despite the outrage after Ferguson, after Eric Garner. And I'm curious, if what are your thoughts about where we're headed? Because your, your book, written in the calm of 2017, is, um, is, is a... Um, pardon the term, a wonky book. It's full of policy suggestions about how we gather data and what the federal government might do in, in, in monitoring police departments and so on. Now we're in a world where people are saying we should get rid of the police in, uh, in certain settings or change their role or cut their funding in half. Uh, as, as, a, as a libertarian, uh, a classical liberal, you know, my general thought is that I want the police doing less of the things that... Uh, I'd wish they weren't fighting the drug war. I think that's a huge part of the corruption of the police. Um, uh, I don't like the idea of certain levels of immunity. I don't like the union power that protects certain officers. But we're at a point now where those are considered like, like again, I, I used to be somewhat radical, but now I'm not. I'm not radical at all. I'm. I'm. I'm look conservative. Where do you think we're going? Well, I, I think that there are two enormously important questions to consider that are very different questions. One of them is the nature, intensity, and, uh, uh, and budgeting of uh, municipal policing in the United States. That's an important question. And Their budgets are it, quite large. I they, know, yeah. and it looks like there are a, a, a mass of these pretty fundamental uh, aspects of the current governance of policing uh, that are at risk. And then there's the question of police use of lethal force. Now, I'm going to tell you my prejudice. I don't think that the very important but very specific and very soluble problem of police use of lethal force is a good general organizing principle to take on these other much more pervasive kinds of policing changes. So that the harassing of, of, of young black men, the, all, all kinds of issues that are, that are uh, troubling. Well, uh, there are all kinds of issues of, uh, uh, of excessive force. There are all kinds of issues uh, uh, also of the assumptions that are made about how to use police power. And those are very important conversations to have. But those are conversations that we can have after we've solved a very specific and very soluble problem. Look, nobody is in love with the New York police force. I'm not. But a New York police force that kills eight or nine people instead of 70 
is a much better urban police force in a way which can be separated from these larger and profoundly important but very difficult uh, questions of organizational change uh, and focus. And as you point out, and I think it seems to be forgotten in, in this particular historical moment, uh, for the same reason we don't have a national database, a reliable national database of people killed by the police. Uh, and that's because for one reason, one of the reasons that is this is a, a necessary reason, not sufficient, we could overcome this, but police is a local function. Um, the the buck should stop somewhere. I, I would have it stop at the police chief's desk and then the mayor's desk. And for some reason in this current uh, moment, it's stopping at the country's desk, which I don't think is productive personally, but it has advantages. But, you know, we do need to think, I think it has forced all of us to think a lot more carefully about race and perhaps, I hope productively about race in general. But your point is that in terms of governance about police killing, which would be a huge improvement, that's got to be done one police department at a time. Uh, certainly, there is a there is hope that that could happen now. Uh, it, it, it's too late for lots of people, um, but better late than never. And, and it's also something that there is national uh, uh, policy that can. Uh, sophisticated policy that can provoke uh, qualified immunity rules have to change states as well as the federal government have to create private damage actions uh, and have to create uh, 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 really effective measures of monetary damage and have to make sure that police departments can't simply make that a small line item of budget. If unjustified killings are an administrative wound to police in the United States, they're going to fix the problem. Yeah, the flip side of that is civil asset forfeiture, which is a way police can make money. And uh, I think your point it's not very glamorous, Frank, so I don't see it carrying the day right this minute, but it might carry the day down the road, is that if you hit them in the wallet, they will it will get their attention. Uh, it is a way to induce a little bit more, perhaps, uh, governance and um, accountability, which is really a lot of what we're talking about today. My guest today has been Frank Zimmering. His book is When Police Kill. Frank, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Well, thank you for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.